Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. This is part two of our look at George Harrison and Friends, otherwise known as the Concert for Bangladesh. When you left us last time on a cliffhanger, it was very exciting. It was Monday, the 26th of July. Rehearsals were starting for a concert that was happening at the end of that week on Sunday, the uh, 1st of August. And as we mentioned last week, when, when rehearsals do start, it's it's not really a, they're not really dealing with a full deck. It's George, Klaus, the horn section and Badfinger. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, so the, 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 these are just the initial rehearsals. And I think that these are taking place uh, in, in a rehearsal space at Carnegie Hall. Oh, right. OK. Um, and in the documentary on the 2005 DVD, there, there are there, there's film clips here from various stages of, of these rehearsals. So it does seem to me that uh, there is a lot of material there, filmed mm-hmm. material that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, and that's just waiting for a Peter Jackson type. Uh, exactly, Adele. exactly. Um, so well, it's a busy, think, yeah. I was going to say, you think if, 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 if we hadn't had All Things Must Pass delayed by a year, would there have been a 50th anniversary? Well, it's still possible. Super uber, uber, uber box. Let, let's, let's collate all our knowledge and by the end we'll, we'll decree on what a, a super deluxe uh, concert for Bangladesh could look like. Um, it, George has been, as we said in the first part, he's donated so much time to all of this. He has spent weeks on the phone trying to line people up. He has written a song. He has gone off. He has recorded a song. And this last week in July is very busy. So the first set of rehearsals are on Monday the 26th. And on Tuesday the 27th, um, Ravi Shankar and George with Alan Klein give the the press conference, which is something there's a lot of footage about from that press conference where George is in front of a very eager press and uh, he's been quite um, he's been quite sincere about what they're trying to do. He is, and he he's sort of dealing with various aspects. He's dealing with uh, you know he's trying to stay away from the political uh, uh, origins of 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 the humanitarian issue but at the same time he is clearly conscious that uh, even by saying the word bangladesh he's he's just drawing attention and getting that word into in, into uh, sort of currency um there's they're touching on the lineup and he's they're not really giving too much away uh there um but interestingly he does say just thinking about this makes me shake mm. and and he genuinely comes across as being nervous that he's being very deliberate in the way he's speaking in this press conference and he he's trying to keep 
his emotions under check. I mean, it, it's not a lighthearted, it, it's a million miles away from any press conference you've ever seen the Beatles do. And, and one of the things that he keeps being asked about is, you know, why are you doing this? You know, there's so many other things you could be doing. And I, yes. I think it's a very unfair question. It's, it's, it's certainly, even, even nowadays, it's one of those things of, oh, you're, you care about X, well, why don't you care about Y? Exactly, exactly. I mean, it is, it's a very, it's, it is, and it's, it, it's interesting to see it. it and he, he addresses that. He, say, he basically says, well, look, my friend asked me to, to get involved. And he does say, well, you know, last year it was Biafra. Um, this is just a, 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 this is this year's problem. And he makes the point, this, this, these are things that happen all the time that, yep. that, you, that the West isn't aware of. And he's very upfront. I mean, as you say, the Bangladesh single, very literal, my friend came to me. So mm. he's saying, well, I was asked to do it. And he, he goes full in. So that's the Tuesday is the press conference day. Wednesday, the Bangladesh single actually comes out. It comes out two days later in, in the UK. So this is a full on kind of media onslaught. And again, yep. we've said it before, we keep saying it. it's all to do with getting attention, getting the advertising out there, getting the word out there onto people's minds. And then on Thursday, over from Spain comes good old Ringo. Good old Ringo. Nice. Dress, uh, dress, dressed up with this cowboy beard. He's big, long kind of beard and it's an odd look. It, it, yes, it is an odd look. Uh, and then on Friday the 30th, Leon Russell arrives and he's in the middle of a, a tour and he's bringing a, a chunk of his band with him as well. Yes. So, uh, you know, as, as we mentioned uh, last time, Leon Russell is 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 having his moment in the sun. Uh, and you've got this whole, you know, you've got Leon Russell, you've got that whole Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishman, Delaney and Bonnet, Bonnie, all of those, all those people that you don't like. <laughs> yeah, no, no pop music at all. Yeah, you, you know, he didn't ask the monkeys to come and play at the concert for Bangladesh. Well, now, 1971, shall I do an hour on the monkeys and where they were in 71? They were really winding down, you know, it was Peter had left, Nesmith had left, you know. They were it's, focused on other things. They were. They were looking to um their 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 appeal was becoming selective, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Just you. Yes. So so yeah, so so Leon Leon Russell has his touring band and uh he's basically said, Look, I'll bring my touring band. Um and you'll see it uh, at some points during the tour. M- members of the sort of core band, if you like, that, that disappear and for, for Russell's performance, members mm-hmm. of his touring band come on. But the, the most important thing is he has brought um, Don Nix, who uh, is organizing the backing singers. Um, Don Nix is a really interesting character and he has one fantastic album called In God We Trust from right. 1971. It's like one of those lost... Um, early 70s albums that just that people have forgotten about but uh, people should go and check it out he has a Stax connection uh, he used to be in a group called the Marquees that eventually sort of became Booker T and the MGs you may have heard of Booker yes, T and yes, the MGs yes yes um, so he brings uh, has organised the choir and has brought the, the backing singers and um, George in, in, in the concert just gives a very general oh and thanks to all the singers but there's one singer in particular um, I'd like to single out, which is uh, Claudia Lanier. Tell us about Claudia Lanier. <laughs> Claudia Lanier, you may know her from such films as 20 Feet from Stardom. Ah, she's in that. She was in that. So yes, um, she was one of Ike and Tina Turner's Ikeettes. Yes. Um, and uh, she's actually very, she, she had a spat with Tina 
It's hard mm-hmm. to believe. Hard to believe. And uh, um, have we talked about Tina Turner and her spat with Elton John before? That was my favorite part of Elton John's fantastic autobiography. That was that was a great uh, that was that was a great story. As, yes. as a sideline, just the fact that uh, Tina Turner was so mean to Elton and his band, and Elton is very loyal to his band, which is quite fascinating for the last. Were, 50 they, were years. they going to do a, a joint tour or something? Was that the plan? At uh, I one think point, the, I think or? they were at some kind of event, and she just was being an absolute nightmare. Anyway, anyway, we digress. Claudia Lanier was having none of it. She was having none of it and she left. But uh, she was with the Icats when Ike and Tina Turner supported the Rolling Stones on their 1969 tour of America. Ah. And as is, I suppose, compulsory if you're a backing singer uh, uh, in a group supporting the Rolling Stones. She had an affair with uh, Mick Jagger and is Hmm. supposedly um, the inspiration for the Rolling Stones song Brown Sugar. Would that be something you'd be happy about or not happy about? Well, she seems she seems reasonably happy about it. Oh, okay, it. fair um, enough. She seems reasonably happy about it. Uh, she appeared in uh, the August Check Your Back issues, nineteen seventy four <laughs> issue of Playboy Let's magazine. Have a quick look here on the shelves. Ah, yes, yeah, in a pictorial which was actually entitled Brown Sugar, but the alternate the alternate title for that pictorial could have been Lady Grinning Soul. Uh, why is that another song that she inspired? Apparently so, because she also had an affair with David Bowie. Goodness gracious me! And Mick Jagger had an affair with David Bowie. And, <laughs> maybe, well, possibly, maybe, maybe. At least one of those people is still alive, so we yes. have to say allegedly. Allegedly, according to Angie Bowie, then, yes, then. very reliable uh, witness. Uh, very reliable witness. So anyway, uh, Claudia Lanier is one of the backing singers, but this is the most interesting thing about her is she went on to, to get a degree in French literature and art history, and she is now a teacher teaching French, Spanish, English and remedial maths. My maths is not good. <laughs> um, my goodness. I didn't have a teacher like that. I certainly didn't have a teacher who toured with the Stones and appeared in Playboy. I don't think. Pretty certain. Cast your mind back. I'm sure that would have. None of those nuns appeared in Playboy. <laughs> well, it's just the idea that you, you know, you come in and say, "Miss, is this you? I find this on top of my dad's wardrobe. Would this be?" <laughs> well, yes, I know. I, I have to admit the, the the whole brown sugar thing. I did say to my good lady wife reasonably recently when brown sugar was on one of these BBC Four Friday night things. I said, "Did you ever read the lyrics to Brown Sugar?" And uh, she was like, "No." And I said, yeah, "Just Google them there and." Just be slightly aghast at everything else in the world. What was it? What was it you want? You you said in a previous episode. You know, if Randy Newman had written that song, no one would bat an eyelid. Is Randy Newman still singing those words? I wonder. I don't know, I what's, don't know. what's happening in twenty twenty one. Anyway, I don't know. We are we are certainly going down some interesting paths. We still haven't gotten to the concert yet. Uh, also, in terms of the rehearsals, somebody who hasn't turned up is uh, good old Eric Clapton, our friend, uh, who's probably you know diverted on the heroin baps basically is the oh, phrase the heroin, we're looking for the heroin, the heroin baps. baps we should we should credit we should credit uh well well on twitter for the phrase heroin baps uh yeah so he's he's at home uh picnicking on heroin baps um uh, <laughs> but but they they basically are having to look for substitutes uh yes. for eric clapton and uh leon russell uh brings in uh jesse ed davis He's a very accomplished and fantastic guitar player. Very accomplished uh, guitar player. He um, was in Taj Mahal's band, and I think he appears in the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Oh, right. Okay. With with Taj Mahal. I I haven't gone back to check that, but I'm pretty certain he was a member of the band at that uh, 
point. Um, and again, a bit like Jim Keltner, this is Jesse Ed Davis's sort of entree into the Beatles world um, because he will go on to work with uh, John Lennon. He appears, I think it's on on, on Mind Games. Mm-hmm. Um, George gives him a song, Sue Me, Sue You Blues, that you may have come across. Uh, uh, so he actually records it and releases it before George's version uh, hits the shops. He's on Walls and Bridges, Rock and Roll by John Lennon, Extra Texture, Goodnight Vienna, Rotogravure. So he's suddenly... Uh, like Jim Keltner, he's suddenly part of that. Uh, he's, he's everywhere. Collection. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And even even in the late eighties, he's part of these kind of proto Silver Wilburys. Yes, um, yes. This when, is this is a great story. This is in nineteen eighty seven, uh, and his band, the Graffiti Band, were at the Palomino Club in North Hollywood, California. And who's in the audience but George Harrison, Bob Dylan, and John Fogerty, all of whom get up for a jam. You'd quite like to have been in that. That would have been all right. I wouldn't Audience. have said uh, that, was, uh, that, that would have been good fun. Um, but Captain does eventually appear after having all these plane tickets booked for him. He eventually does get on the plane and he doesn't attend any of the rehearsals. He just he, wanders well, on stage. He, well, no, no, no. He, he saunters in on the 31st of July. He's at the last, the very last dress rehearsal. Okay, okay. And uh, he apparently uh, says that um, he made it hard for himself by choosing to play a hollow body Gibson. Yes, I'm not sure of the because uh, he's usually a Stratocaster man. He, if memory he serves. is. I mean, he makes the point in this documentary that, and the thing is, he he is playing. He's playing solid solid body guitar elsewhere during the concert, and yeah. then for while my guitar gently weeps, he pulls out this enormous kind of semi semi acoustic uh, uh, guitar to play the solo, and uh, he says himself, you know, I don't know why I did that. Uh, it, it's it's it it just made things really very difficult. So was or was not Peter Frampton supposed to be there? Well, that's a good question. That's a very <laughs> well. good question. Um, if we could get Peter to come on, uh, he could tell yes. us. But yeah, he, he says in his book, which is a very good book, Peter, if you're listening, um, uh, it's a very good book. He says that that he was sort of being lined up. And initially, he didn't realize he was being lined up. But people were sort of saying to him, um, you, you know, uh, you, you should make yourself available, be in New York, get ready. And he said it was only sort of at the very last minute that he realized, oh, right, okay, I'm being kind of tapped to, to possibly uh, join up. But again, in that documentary, there, 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 someone says it became, I think it's Jonathan Taplin, who is the, um, he, he, he works with the band. You won't have come across him because you don't like the band. Like um, the band. Yeah. Uh, he, he was part of their crew and he was the sort of production coordinator for setting up the concert. Um, and he says it became known that Clapton was in difficulties and that Clapton may not be coming. And he said the lobby of the hotel just started filling up with guitar players who were <laughs> kind of, oh, hello, you know, uh, I'm here. I could step in. I could I could I could fill in. So um, but Jesse Ed Davis got uh, got the gig. And as we approach uh, August the 1st, you know, Dylan still isn't totally committed yet. No, Dylan turns up at that last rehearsal uh, mm-hmm. on, on the 31st of July. And again, Chris O'Dell is an eyewitness to that. And she writes about this in the book and she, she talks about, uh, you know, him arriving and the atmosphere changing. And then Eric Clapton comes in and she, she recounts just how, what a bad state Clapton is in. Yeah. Um, and she said, this is the day before the, um, before the concert. 
Dylan is at that rehearsal and then uh, apparently partway through, he just kind of says, I, I, I have to go. I have to be on Long Island and disappears and just mm. leaves. So n- no one is really sure. Is that him gone? And is is, is he coming this, yeah. or is he not coming? And George recounts the fact that Dylan was kind of saying, you know, this isn't this isn't my scene. This is uh yeah, you know, I, I, I don't want to do this. This is this is uh, not for me. And George is saying, well, look, it's all right for you. You are a solo performer. You have done this before. I have never yeah. um, done this before. Um, and he, George is also saying to Dylan, because Dylan, uh, Dylan at this stage has not really appeared. He's not done a gig since the Isle of Wight gig. Yeah. Um, he, he's appeared as a guest, surprise guest on a, on a band show, a New Year's Eve sh- uh, show that they did. But he's, he's basically dropped out of the public eye. He's not releasing music. His last album has been pretty badly uh, received. So George is very aware that getting Dylan is a major coup if he can mm. get him. And he, he recounts the fact that he was saying to Dylan, you know, I, can you do Mr. Tambourine Man? Can you do blowing in the wind and Dylan says to him well are you going to do I want to hold your hand <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the idea is it's you know if Dylan appears and simply does something off self portrait that's yeah. not that's not going to go down well but at the same time Dylan does not want to be a kind of heritage act at this stage, you know. Even t- this is even today, Dylan will give you his, um, y- you know, his back catalogue, but in a way that uh, uh, you're not expecting. But yes, yeah, so Dylan Dylan is at the last rehearsal, but then exits. So no and one is this no, is the day he, before the gig, and no one is sure. Yeah, he's turned his mobile off. He's thrown his iPhone into the Hudson River. Yeah. All that stuff. All that stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the last rehearsal is essentially also a sound check on the 31st of July in Madison Square Garden. Um, do we know who played Madison Square Garden on the 30th of July, Stephen? Um, it was, I believe, Stephen Stills. And uh, so Stephen Stills must have been very excited about the notion of being so close to such a gig. Yes, because he uh, allows Harrison to use his stage, his sound, his lighting system. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's a shoe in for a big guest <laughs> spot on the uh, concert for Bangladesh. And does that happen? No. Yeah, I don't recall that happening. I'm sure he was totally fine with that. Uh uh, supposedly, he was not fine with that. And, you know, Stephen Sills is usually such a kind of calm, measured, <laughs> egoless uh, yes. individual. But yes. he, he, he was, uh, not only did George not invite him to perform, he didn't say thank you or name check him or anything. And supposedly, allegedly, uh, Stephen Sills spent the entire time drunk in Ringo's dressing room. I'm looking at my notes here, quote, barking at everyone, unquote me <laughs> um so yeah so Stephen stills did give some of his gear and as you said the the, the band uh, also had some of their production crew there jonathan taplin and chip monk the lighting designer yes chip monk real name is that his real name no i don't think so it can't be his real name <laughs> can't be can't be his real name Yes, it's only dawned to me that that's Chipmunk. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. <laughs> but you would, you you will, you will know uh, Chipmunk from such movies as Woodstock. Yes, uh, he was the uh, um, master of ceremonies. And, he's the uh, brown acid voice. Of he's man, isn't the he? guy going, "Stay off the towers! Watch out <laughs> for the brown acid!" Yeah, 
Yeah, geez, that's, that's so that's everyone a, is there. A, that's a claim to fame. That is a claim to fame. So we get to August the 1st. And the thing to remember about Concert for Bangladesh is it's two concerts. It's two concerts. The, the demand has been so great that uh, they, they've introduced a, a, a matinee show as well as the evening show. So what do we need to know about the differences between what's the, what's the best way to approach this? I suppose the afternoon show comes first, but it's the one that's probably represented least in the eventual in the film, live, certainly. Yes, uh, film, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, it is tempting to kind of think of the the afternoon show as a bit of a rehearsal or a you know certainly they they tinker with the set list um, slightly between the two shows, so we can kind of walk through yeah, the, let's after, do the, after. After, the afternoon show because if we're keeping tabs on George Harrison live, he played. You know, the Delaney and Bonnie gigs in December 1969, which were very much unannounced. Yeah. Uh, he made that one appearance uh, with the Plastic Ono band as well. Uh, yes, that's at the at the Lyceum. So he was, but he was one of a cast of thousands there. Yeah, that was a huge kind of yeah. melee yeah, all, on stage. Yes, all of, all of Delaney and Bonnie are, are there. And, and so this is the first time people would have bought a ticket to see George Harrison since Candlestick Park in August 1966. And yes. he's very much, uh, he, he's, he's, he's emceeing the event because Ravi is going to open the event. He is. So one of, one of the things that George was very keen on was that the uh, kind of event itself should have a direct link to the cause so that this wasn't just going to be, um, you know, a group of Western rock stars coming out and uh, performing their, their, their hits and raising some money. He wanted there to actually be a link. So if you remember, the original idea had been a Ravi Shankar uh, uh, concert. Mm-hmm. Um, so the opening section is going to be a performance by um, Ravi Shankar and his fellow musicians. Um, the, the, that's Ali Akbar Khan, Alaraka, and mm-hmm. Kamala Chakravarti. Okay. And George is very... I think George, it, it, it's interesting in, in terms of introducing Ravi. He knows that the audience are not really there to see Ravi and he's yeah. kind of asking them for a bit of patience and oversight and the the audience are trying to give that they are yes and I mean even even the way George is dressed I mean he comes on stage to do the introduction he's dressed in jeans and a waistcoat and it, it's quite a kind of low-key outfit he has on um, mm. and he sort of explains uh, that the Indian music requires a bit of attention and you should please you know pay attention to this. Um, and then the Ravi Shankar comes out and says more or less the same thing, says, you know, we know you're here to see the Western rock stars, but uh, this, this music is, is, requires a bit of a, a, a attention. And uh, in, in the documentary, Ravi Shankar says, you know, the, there were very hot lights and right. this had caused the Indian instruments to go slightly out of tune, so yeah. they had to sort of about a minute and a half. They kind of uh, tune the instruments, and all of this is on film and on the album. It's very funny. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the, the the tuning up, the audience there's a round of applause, and Ravi Shankar, <laughs> who's sort of sitting down with the seat, leans very purposefully into the mic and says, "Thank you very much. If you enjoyed the tuning up so much, we hope you will enjoy the performance even more." <laughs> <laughs> Bless that audience were just trying to be nice. They were trying to be nice, but it, it's 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 difficult to tell from the film whether the audience are actually thinking. It. I mean, he, Shankar in the documentary says, uh, you know, they must have thought it was a piece of a piece of music. Uh, they must have thought it was a piece, but it is funny, and I think it's 
very nice that they left that in. I mean, yes. they had no reason to do that. And it's, 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 it's a joke at the audience's expense. I think that's the point. It's not a joke at Ravi Shankar's expense. Yes, that is true. It's a joke yeah. at the audience's expense, but it's a kind of gentle. It is a kind joke you know? of the audience. Yeah. Because the audience are, are, are at least paying attention and they're, they're at least trying to be part of what's going on. Yes. Um, we think Ravi and friends play for about 40, 45 minutes. Yes. I mean, we think it was a long, it was a long 45 minute uh, set. Now, there's only a short uh, piece of that um, appears in the film and on the album. Um, but, you know, you, you think if you're a Western rock audience, young Western rock audience at Madison Square Garden, 45 minutes of Indian classical music is is... You know, it might be quite the ask. Um, again, I've said I, I don't pretend to know anything about Indian classical yeah. music. But if you're watching the film, it's the interplay um, between uh, uh, Ali Akbar Khan and Ravi Shankar is just amazing. Let me ask you a question, because uh, there's a parallel, obviously, between what happens here and what happens at the concert for George, which I believe you were at. Yes, yes, I keep so, forgetting that. So in terms of being in the room when this kind of stuff is happening live, it always seemed to me, I've never seen sitar music played live, but it always seems like kind of dance music, that the situation and where you hear it is important. Or And so to see it played live and to kind of feel it live would be a, a different type of sensation. Um, well, as you know, I don't like to really talk about the concert for George. No, you're quite shy. I'm about quite that. shy about that. But just for you, on this one occasion, I'll make an exception. And our tens of listeners. Our tens of listeners. Uh, who, uh, so at the concert for George, Ravi Shankar at that, that stage was quite elderly and he was not really in a position to perform. But he came out and made a little uh, sort of speech. And I have to say, there was a palpable sense of of being in the room with somebody not just somebody famous but there was he there was there was like a this is going to sound somebody like hugely some, historical somebody who's been around a long time this is going to sound like some terrible hippy dippy thing but there was like a kind of vibration in the room it was the, it was this, you know all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and you were kind of thinking this is this is this is Ravi Shankar, yeah. Um, um, but it was his daughter Anushka Shankar was a, came out with a group of musicians, and it was absolutely entrancing. Yeah. I have to say, yeah. absolutely, uh, ab- absolutely engaging. And I think it is it, it it's it is as you say it's it's music where you're sitting there and you're watching what's going on. And you can almost feel the mm. music as much as hear it. Um, so sort of sitting you know, driving in your car and listening to Indian music. or I say, I don't pretend to know anything about Indian music. I did see Anushka Shankar do a thing last year at the proms, just on television with a Western orchestra, mm-hmm. which was amazing. And I'm very excited to say I have a ticket to go and see the Ravi Shankar Centenary in the Sidebank. Yes, Bank. in um, 2022. Yes, yes, yes. Thanks to friend of the podcast, friend of us all, uh, yes. Ad- Adrian, uh, who has got me a ticket. That'll be a, quite a shindig, shall we say. Yes. Um, so going back to the 1st of August, after 45 minutes of Ravi and Friends, there's a, an intermission and they show a, a TV film displaying footage of the atrocities uh, that are going on in, in, in what's known as East Pakistan. And, and something that's also, you know, you know, it again pushes this narrative of giving people information about what's happening. The Even the Bangladesh single that's out at that point in time, the cover of the sleeve cover of the single is headlines and news and information. It's important to kind of remember that as well. Um, and then, you know, it's also quite a multimedia for, for 1971, quite a 
quite ahead of a game thing to do to be projecting this stuff onto screens and telling the audience what's happening. Yes, it is. I mean, this is the thing. He's using every uh, available resource uh, to get the message across. And then we're on to the main act, which is part two. And this is, again, it's hard to imagine that the audience still didn't really know who was about to walk on stage. No. So who do they get? So the the, the initial band uh, is George, Ringo, Eric Clapton, slightly the worst for wear. I mean, visibly the worst for wear. Yeah. Uh, Leon Russell, Billy Preston, Klaus Vorman, Jim Keltner, and 18 other people. Yeah, between backing singers, horn players, Badfinger, everyone yeah. else. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, absolutely nuts. And, and if you think about it, this is Phil Spector's wall of sound live. Yes. Yes. And Phil Spector is there. Yes. Yeah. Phil is ostensibly in a van out the back uh, mm. with a sort of 16-track mobile recording unit. Um, although George would say later, every time he looked around, Phil was actually in the kind of pit at the front of the stage dancing and not actually in the uh, uh, doing any work at all. Yeah, and Phil, Phil recounts just watching the gig and saying it was magical and saying it was fantastic and, and all the rest. Doesn't, doesn't actually recount twiddling any knobs on the day. <laughs> well, the other thing is, I'm assuming that even though the, the gig was filmed, that there wasn't any kind of live video relay. There were no screens at that point. No. That people could have. So so if you're sitting at the back of Madison Square Garden, there's probably a bit of a, a Chinese whispers going up the, the back of the stalls. Is that... Yes. Unless you brought your opera glasses. Yes, um, I can imagine. Uh, which you always bring to your gigs. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, uh, yes, it must have been. And the other thing from the film to, to note is it's a tiny stage. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like it's almost, it looks like a stage you could just throw up in somebody's back garden. Um, and uh, all of these people are crowded on. So you're used today, you know, you go to see a gig, people are spaced out, there, there's space uh, on literally. stage. <laughs> well, uh, you know, people people can kind of move around on stage. Everybody on this stage is incredibly static, apart yeah. from Billy, Billy Preston at one point. But um, every, no one moves from where they are because there is no space at all because of the number of people that are crowded on. Most of the time, you can't even see Badfinger. They're off to kind of to the right-hand side as you look yeah. at the stage. Um, so, yeah, tiny, tiny stage. So... The concert begins and there's actually is audience bootleg recordings where you can actually hear, you know, people kind of shouting and mumbling over each other. And, yeah. you know, the first thing they hear is the, the riff of wah, wah. Yes. And people receive it like. Yeah. It's, you know, it's yeah. An old it's friend. An old friend. Uh, this is, um, we talk for 20 minutes about wah, wah. Um, the background. <laughs> We've done to, that. Well, the background is this is a song that George wrote when he had an argument with, with, uh, with somebody else in the Beatles that his name I can't remember and um, this is also the first song that George records for All Things Must Pass and this is the first song that George plays uh, live and it is also the last song at the concert for George that apart, is true. From, apart from Joe Brown's little now you could think that's Coda. because of what it says but it's really just because it's a great riff and a great groove it gets people going um, you're considering this song is only to the public's knowledge about six months old at the time roughly uh, you know people receive it like here's a brand new album track it doesn't usually go down well in a lot of gigs these days but people are very people just people kick off people are very open to it I think, it's, I think it's indicative of a couple of things it's indicative of the fact that you know all things must pass 
has been such a hit. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is a, a, an album that everyone will have heard. Um, plus the 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 sort of the love for George Harrison. You know, it's a Beatle in New York on stage. Um, plus they're making a hell of a sound. Yeah. You, you know, hear that in the you hear that in the audience bootlegs that it just yeah. cuts it, through. It is. It's like a, it's like it is a wall of sound. It's it's mm. in a, yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say is George's voice is kind of mixed a little low. Yeah. Uh, but um, on on the remastered film, they punched it up a bit. You know. So if we walk through the set list, the next song they play is something. Yes. And I think I'm right in saying this is the first time a solo Beatle plays a Beatles song live? It must be. Um, Is it? Your Blues. Ah, okay. Uh, 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 well, you're talking about Rock and Roll Circus, are you? No, well, oh, uh, uh, yes, you're, you're, yes, I'm Peace in Toronto and yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm Rock and Roll Circus. Ah, right. So I'm, so I'm just wrong again. <laughs> I'm, I'll add it, I'm adding it to the list. Uh, okay. Let, let, let's, let's then change the angle and say it's the first time a Beatles song is deployed as here's one that you'll love. Yes. You know, if people yes. are very happy to hear him roll out a hit. Yes. The, the thing that's interesting is, you know, you think of this big division between solo Beatles and, and, and Beatles Beatles. Um, only 87 weeks has passed since that song was number one, not even two years. So it is still, if you think about what you were doing 20 months ago, yeah, yes. uh, well, when we were still doing things, um, you know, it's it's still a new song and it's, it, but it, it appears here almost like an old song. Yes, it's it, yes. It's not that he's kind of playing Taxman or or she loved or I want to hold your hand. You know, he yes. This is a relatively new song, but it's being received as yeah. a, as a, as a kind of classic, uh, classic uh, hit. And then next up is a waiting on you all, uh, uh, which and, and, and again, uh, great kind of mm. horn section. I mean, the horns in this, uh, uh, the, the you know, they're working from sheet music uh it's a kind of fairly loose feel but the horns are very precise and and, yeah. and are the, the horns really shine through on on this so uh very well laid out and now it's time for some of the guests to come forward we get um billy preston who sings that's the way god planned it very animated very animated uh and uh, billy preston at this point is not well known in mm. america uh, that song has been a hit in the UK, but he is a sideman. Mm. You know, he, he, he's, he's played with Little Richard. He's played with Ray Charles. Uh, you know, people may have seen him by this stage uh, on the, the Let It Be uh, film, but he's not a big star. He's not, yeah. uh, he, you know, on that stage, he is not one of the heavy hitters. But here we are, four songs in, and he's got a solo spot. And yeah. he absolutely delivers if you... Look at the uh, the footage um, completely spontaneously uh, in in the evening show, which is the, the the clip that is in the film. He just gets up from behind the keyboard and dances across the stage mm. in a kind of weird. They takes us takes over George's mic and starts singing from there, and you can see that George is not expecting that. You can yeah. see him kind of like almost laughing, but also thinking. It looks like he's thinking, you know, what the hell is is going on here? But I. I have to say my sense is when the film comes out this is a huge factor in billy preston's future career you yeah. know it's it kind of gives him massive uh massive exposure in america in particular so who's up next uh that would be ringo 
Ringo Starr. So, and he's doing It Don't Come Easy, which had come out as a single in April uh, 71, obviously written uh, written by Ringo with a bit of George and produced by George. So legend is that Ringo gets the biggest reception. Yes, yes, absolutely. And one of the things about the film is they sort of truncate the, the audience responses to, to some of the songs. So that doesn't necessarily... Um, kind of come across but uh, Nicholas uh, Schaffner who wrote The Beatles Forever mm-hmm. and also appeared as a talking head in in, in uh, Complete Beatles he was there um, for the first show and he said yeah this was the biggest ovation of the afternoon and of course Ringo kind of fluffs the lyrics a little bit <laughs> um, the, in, the one of the fascinating things and bear in mind we, we said Ringo and Keltner have only met uh, during the Bangladesh Mm. Uh, recording session and then Ringo comes in on the 29th of July is when Ringo arrives there's a camera that is focusing on Ringo and Jim Keltner kind of like an angled thing they are so tight so synchronised their drumming is incredible Um, you know during this performance but right throughout the whole thing they're absolutely in lockstep the whole way yeah uh, after that, it's everyone kind of gets a, a bit of a star turn. Beware of Darkness is next, which is kind of a duet with Leon Russell, who has a version out. Uh, it's a terrible version. I don't really know his version. I have to. I don't listen to much Leon Russell. Leon Russell and the Shelter People. It's, can I just say, I know you quite well. You will not like this. <laughs> no, I, I, I know myself reasonably well. There's a reason why I haven't listened it, to it. It's a very kind of, you know... Uh, at that kind of south, I I quite like that, but I just don't do not like his version of "Beware of Darkness." But w- one song you might like is he does a version. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on that album of "Hard Rain's Gonna Fall." Oh, okay. In a rock style that predates um, Brian Ferry's version. Brian Ferry, and I I do love Brian Ferry's version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they do "Beware of Darkness," and then "While My Guitar Gently Weeps," which Clapton kind of steps to the fore to do kind of a dueling guitar with Harrison. Yeah. Um, uh, but you kind of look when you kind of look at the set list there that is really strongly constructed set list it's it's all killer no filler with the pulling in people at the right angles if you're in the audience you're really absolutely I mean it's, it. it's it's fantastically well done and I suppose while my guitar gently weeps is it, it kind of takes it to a to a to a peak um, the, the, most of the film is the evening performances but mm. The While My Guitar Gently Weeps is the uh, afternoon performance. But again, the camera angle, one of the camera angles, you can see Ringo in the background and you can see him watching Clapton. Right. Very carefully watching Clapton. There's a lot of focus. People on that stage are watching Clapton as he's kind of doing this lead, this lead work. Um, And this is one of the songs where there was some overdubbing for the album. Oh, right. Okay. So uh, it was fixed in the mix. Hmm. Uh, Next up, Leon Russell uh, gets the spotlight for himself doing Jumping Jack Flash and Young Blood medley. What do you think of this? Eh. (laughs) (laughs) This is is why you won't like Leon Russell's album. I think think if I was there, I might have nipped the loo. Oh no! I thought I thought you were going to say <laughs> I, 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 if I was there, I would really have enjoyed this. But no, listening no, to look, it, listening it's to all... it back, I, I I really like his version of Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah, uh, and uh, Young Blood is quite funny. What I don't like so much is the kind of improvised goes on forever segue yeah. between the two. 
But yeah. it's it's very much of its time, and it's all talking about you know old ladies and you know <laughs> I saw I saw a young young girl on the corner. I mean, it's all very politically incorrect. It is a song the Beatles covered. Um, yes, it's on anthology, isn't it? It's on anthology, and uh, it was, it's on it's on sorry it's on uh, Beatles at uh, BBC. BBC, and, pardon um, me, you're right? Yes, from from nineteen sixty four, I think. But it's George. It's a George song. Uh, he he sings this. It's a kind of comedy song, but again, from 2020, 2021, it's a little, little dodgy, little yeah. suspect. But it's all, but what happens next is a little bit of magic because it's George and on an acoustic with Pete Ham and he's singing Here Comes the Sun. Yes. It's lovely. It is great. Yeah. And, and the crowd with the, as soon as they realise what they're hearing, Go yep. nuts. Go absolutely, absolutely nuts. Um, and again, you've got that kind of choir in the background uh, the, the, with Don Nix's uh, choir. Um, it is a lovely version, just two acoustic guitars. And on the film, you can see Pete Ham is concentrating. He never looks up. Mm. From the fretboard, you know, he's absolutely because they're, they're, they're again, it's they're playing in lockstep. Those those two acoustic guitars. Um, if you compare it with the version that he does with years later with Paul Simon, which is a much more kind of Paul Simon's much more kind of relaxed. And, mm. um, but I suppose you know Pete, Pete Pete Ham is up there on stage wearing a white suit. Yeah. So he's he's up there, the only other person on the stage wearing a white suit. He and uh, I think it's Joey Molland from the band said uh, we we were all a bit aghast when Pete turned up in his white suit because we knew <laughs> that George was wearing a white suit and it was like, you know, I, I want to be noticed too. Well, you know, if you're playing Madison Square Garden with, you know, not a whole lot of cameras or anything else, a white suit will do the trick, you know. Um, at this point, uh, George puts on a white Fender Stratocaster. He looks down at the set list. There's the word Bob with a question mark and he's wondering whether Bob is going to appear or whether he's going to have to take a break. But you know who's going to have to take a break, Stephen? Tell us. We are. So we'll see you after these messages. You're good. <laughs> End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So it's it's hard to believe now, considering how amazing Dylan is at this gig that it is yes. still a bit of a mystery right up until the moment he walks on stage about whether he is even going to walk on stage. Yes. And I mean, it is, I, I thought this was an exaggeration uh, where, you know, George is saying, oh, uh, you know, I, I, we couldn't say that he was coming. We, we, we didn't know. He, he sort of looked at 
in, into the wings and there he was. So he knew that he could then step forward and say, a friend of us all, Mr. Bob Dylan. But the, the, the other musicians um, corroborate that. They say, you know, they had no idea whether Dylan was going to be there or not. And then suddenly he appeared in his kind of double denim uh, outfit, wandering around, ready to go. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, again, the logistics of this. It's, it's, I mean, I, I think the audience were already getting their money's worth before Dylan comes on stage. When Dylan comes on stage, it becomes something totally uh, different. And, you know, the, the, the magical thing is that it's not just Dylan rocking up and doing any old stuff. He's really doing a very specific yes type of performance and a type and a collection of songs yes and i mean this is this is one of one of the things that we're saying you know george wanted him to do these songs he wanted him to do these songs these kind of iconic things from the early part of his career um and dylan was sort of saying to george what are you going to do i want to hold your hand you know but and we know that dylan is pretty uh you know contrary and he's not <laughs> fond of revisiting uh, his his old songs. And certainly if he does, he doesn't do it in a way that, that you will recognize. Um, but here he steps up. So he's got George is playing uh, lead guitar, just very subtle uh, uh, interjections in the song. Um, Leon Russell has picked up Klaus Vorman's bass and Ringo is standing uh, to one side with the tambourine. So it's just a very nice little close uh, strip back arrangement uh, of these songs. Um, so you've got a hard rain's gonna fall, blowing in the wind. It takes a lot to laugh, it takes a train to cry. Love minus zero over no limit. And just like a woman, that's the um, afternoon show. Um, yeah. It's probably worth spending 40 or 50 minutes just talking about Bob Dylan. Well, well it's it's... Yeah, I mean, obviously, we all love Dylan because he's mercurial and he follows his own path. But that is uh, the definition of a crowd-pleasing setlist, particularly for somebody who has virtually not appeared live, apart from the Isle of Wight, yeah. in about five years. Yes. I mean, this, this this is not what you could expect from Dylan before or after. You know, this is Dylan stepping up, recognising, I think, the sort of the import of the uh, of, of the event um and and giving a performance he's he's performing as bob dylan mm. you know this is this is the kind of mythic uh look of bob dylan this is this is a kind of classic look of bob dylan you do kind of picture bob dylan it, it is a throwback <laughs> the kind of denim look it is this kind of throwback to to the early 60s um there, there's a book by paul williams performing artist the music of bob dylan and i'm, I'm just going to read Nine or, ten, nine or ten pages. Um, he said, this was Dylan's first live performance in two years. Harrison had to twist his arm to get him to take part in the Benefit concert, and we can be very glad he did. It's a stunning performance, both shows, modest, confident, richly textured, and with Dylan feeling and communicating genuine love for the music he's playing. In the case of Blowing in the Wind, this was his first public performance of the song in seven years. Wow. And again, as you say, you know, that's a lifetime in 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 1971, uh, yeah. the, you know, in, in the history of rock and roll, he goes on to say, most of all, Dylan's voice on this midsummer afternoon and evening has a rare, penetrating beauty that is immediately noticeable to almost anyone who hears it. This is, in a very real sense, the Dylan a large part of his audience dreams of hearing. This is the voice to fit the stereotyped, mythic image of Bob Dylan, guitar strumming, port laureate of the 60s. Dylan could fill halls forever playing this set of songs uh, with this 
close to the original arrangements alone or with a few backup musicians, a fact that has always either been terrifying or simply of no interest uh, to him. This is what the mass audience and many of his avid fans most want from him. He seldom obliges and for good reason, but this time he does and with no cynicism at all, just heartfelt enthusiasm for the music that's flowing through him and the other musicians and the real pleasure, even astonishment at the warm response of the audience. Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah, it's so what you're saying is it's good. I'm saying it's very good. I'm saying <laughs> it is so good. It kind of overshadows almost everything. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I remember having the, the Bangladesh album, uh, you know, buying that and uh, it's it, that that's the side that I just played over and over and over and over again. It, it It's just... Uh, as Paul Williams says, that's if you think of Dylan, everything you want from Dylan it's is just there, there in in those uh, five five songs. It is a pity we didn't get because they they rehearse if not for you, don't they? They rehearse if not for you, and uh, Love Mine Is Zero No Limit is in the afternoon show, but they they switch that out for Mr. Tambourine Man as if as if it wasn't good <laughs> what, enough. What other hit um, could I do? What, what other hit? Um, and and then the the Love Mine Is Zero No Limit uh, turns up. Uh, as a bonus track but yeah there's some lovely footage of, mm. of George and Dylan um, uh, uh, rehearsing if not for you and you can see them kind of working their way through the vocal arrangement and you can see them kind of laughing and you can see them uh, you know following each other and when you get to that live performance um, th- there's, there's a lot of intersong talk so mm-hmm. you imagine Bob is saying you know now I'm going to do this song or now I'm going to in the way that we know he does with his band now. He just switches the set list around. And um, Ringo tells a little story in the documentary. And he said, you know, I, I had the uh, picked up the tambourine and we did the show and it's kind of, you know, just four, four time. And he said, that's fine. And then we, we go off and then we come back uh, to do the evening show. And you suddenly realize, ah, OK, now it's in three, four time. It's a waltz. <laughs> and he said, you know, so Dylan is sort of shifting the arrangements a little bit. And but, it, it, you know, you tend to, you know, we're going on about Dylan here, but it's Dylan backed by half the Beatles. Like yes, it's a totally yes. unique experience. Like it's it's insane. It is absolutely nuts. You can only imagine what that must have been. I mean, I mean, particularly because the Beatles have split up. Yeah. Bob Dylan is nowhere to be seen. Yeah. Uh, and then As suddenly, we said before, George gets Bob in the divorce. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, you think that, that there is n- none of the other Beatles could have got Dylan on that stage. Yeah. It is only the personal relationship between yeah. George and Bob that gets Bob Dylan on that stage. The person I feel most sorry for, Klaus Fuhrman. Oh, <laughs> because Why? well, because he's the bass player. Yes, but Leon, but Leon takes. Oh his, yeah, yeah, his no, so of course. Sorry, Leon is on the bass. Of course, yeah. of course, of course. So, so uh, it's like uh, it's like that time poor Bill Wyman in the rock and roll circus when they're. Dirty Mac is playing and you've got Lennon and Clapton and Mitch Mitchell and Keith Richards says I'm the bass player. <laughs> so, so Bill gets, you know, bumped. If only there was a bass player, they could have. Called. I know. Anyway, I know. Anyway, um, can you the- imagine what that would have been like? You've opened this this can of worms. Paul playing one of his fussy bass arrangements uh, for Bob <laughs> over "Love Minus Zero. Over, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that would be excellent. Anyway, uh, the gig 
isn't over yet, but it almost is. The band all then come back and they do Hear Me Lord, My Sweet Lord and Bangladesh. Yes. There's no need for any more Beatles songs at that point. Those songs are enough to cap the gig off and to... Send people home thinking and happy and all the rest. Absolutely, absolutely. And you think if if you had been being completely cynical about this gig, you would have put While My Guitar Gently Weeps at the end. Hmm. But George is finishing this as solo artist. Um, And again, the afternoon gig, Hear Me Lord, that's a very odd song to have chosen. We talked about this on the All Things Must Pass. That's a very personal, um, sort of religious... A expression of kind of helplessness uh, 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 that uh, on all things must pass, and then to decide that that's effectively going to be the first song in 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 the final set. Uh, I would love to. I've never heard that. I mean, I've heard I've heard a kind of uh, audience, but yeah. I, I would love to hear the kind of recorded uh, version of that. Um, My sweet lord, big hit single, and then Bangladesh, which is the reason why we're all there. Yeah, just to remind everybody, I don't think anybody would have left unhappy. There is, of course, the the small matter of an evening show, which is due to happen at 8pm that evening. And Harrison is apparently very, very, very elated and happy that he's pulled the whole thing off. And Dylan is too. So Dylan, the two of them yes. are hanging out like school kids. Yes, they're all they're all back uh, at the Park Lane Hotel. Uh, and uh, Dylan is ecstatic. And, you know, he seems genuinely amazed, a bit like George, genuinely amazed at the response of the audience. Mm. Uh, you know, that the, the, the love. So what they what, but what they do do is they decide to kind of tinker slightly with um, the running order. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, there's I think it's Klaus Vorman talks about uh, Dylan before this evening show is playing requests backstage. So people are saying, oh, play, play. It's all right, Baby Blue. And he's, it's all over Baby Blue. And he he's, plays that. So Dylan is really kind of loose and, and, and energized uh, by, by, by the response. Yeah. And, and they make some interesting changes for the second gig. So, you know, as we said, they finished the first gig with Hear Me Lord, My Sweet Lord in Bangladesh. For the second gig, they drop Hear Me Lord. They bring My Sweet Lord right up to the front of the show after Wawa. Um, and then uh, something closes the show with Bangladesh this time around. Yes. Yes. So, hmm. I mean, I can understand that because I think Wawa and then something obviously slows the pace down. Um but uh, maybe at the start of the show. So they, they, they kind of rejig, rejig that. And uh, um, Dylan changes the running order and drops uh, Love Minus Zero and puts in Mr. Tambourine, Mr. Tambourine Man. Man. Yeah. Like, how, well, how fantastic <laughs> would that have been? I mean, I can't I mean, this kind of thing, oh, if you had a time machine, what gig would you go back? Would you go back to Woodstock? Would you go back to, you know, the Beatles at the Cavern? Would you go back yeah. to see them on the rooftop? This might be, I might actually say, well, to hell with the Beatles. I want to see Bob Dylan playing with George Harrison and Ringo Starr. Um, yeah, imagine seeing two of the Travelling Wilburys in, in one gig. Um, the <laughs> uh, Patty Harrison is there. She says the evening was magnificent. It's nice to know Patty um, uh, was brought on board. Uh, Ravi Shankar says it was, you know, extraordinary. And after the two gigs, they go to a basement club called. You Unganos, am I saying that right? Unganos, yeah. Unganos. Uh, uh, Unganos. And Dylan, a man known for his um, enthusiasm about all things, is apparently elated. He was wishing they'd, they'd done more shows. Yes, well, why didn't we do a third show? Why didn't we do a, thir- do a, do a third show? But uh, there is a kind of a third show at Unganos. Yeah, there's kind of a drunk after party show. This is, this is, this is uh, 
this is what you want to hear. <laughs> Phil Spector, Phil Spector uh, gets drunk, or maybe was gets drunker and plays uh, what is described as a unique version of uh, the Do Ron Ron. Uh, and uh, the celebrations broke up early in the hours. Once Keith Moon again. Glad, glad Keith wasn't on stage. Oh, God, uh, that would have been, yeah. But he gets Occupied. up on stage in the nightclub, smashes up a drum kit, which belonged to Mike Gibbons from Badfinger. Good old Keith. Ah, uh, Keith, always guaranteed to... The, Whatever. The other, the other thing, the other thing, so everybody is extremely happy. Everybody is elated, except for Ravi Shankar. Apparently, he takes Eric Clapton to one side and berates him for being a junkie. Oh, really? So, so there you go. Well, Ravi, I didn't think Ravi could go up in my estimation even more. I like the fact that he's taking Eric to task. (laughs) A little bit of an intervention. And what again, what we should say is, if you remember all the way back to George's original potential set list, uh, Let It Rain was going to be uh, an Eric Clapton solo spot, but clearly Eric Clapton is not fit to do that, you know? He gets methadone from somebody in the crew, doesn't he, just to keep himself steady? Yeah, yeah. He sends his girlfriend, I think his girlfriend at that stage was Alice Ormsby Gore, who's Mm -hmm. uh, subsequently had a very tragic life, but uh, he sends her out to buy heroin. She can't find any, so one of the cameramen or somebody gives him methadone just to get get him through. So if we look at some of the reactions, Ringo says he enjoyed it immensely. He was crazy with nerves, but, you know, there's lots of pals around and it was just good to entertain the people. George says, you know, the money was secondary. Raise an eyebrow at that, but we spread the word. We got the war ended because it's worth saying that the war continues in Bangladesh until December. And it, it, it so, you know, this, this gig is happening in August. The, the, the war continues till December and um, what eventually happens is that there is a, a surrender from the the Pakistan forces and Bangladesh, uh, Bangladesh does get recognized as an independent state and they sign a ceasefire uh, in December um, uh, 1971. Um, John uh, is not particularly, doesn't really have anything nice to say about what happens. No, this is, this is a quote from John and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take issue with John's quote here. He says, I didn't see it. I mean, I haven't seen the movie. It seemed like a great success. You know, it seemed like a great success. Newspaper wise, it turned out great. Seems they got a lot of money. So seemed all right. And for the reports of people there, it seemed fine. I don't think much more about it. Uh, he said, do you have any regrets about not doing it? I don't want to play my sweet Lord. I just soon go out and do exactly what I want. So George is here saying he hasn't, or John is saying he hasn't seen the movie, but there is footage in the 2005 documentary of John attending the premiere of the movie in LA. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 curious, isn't it? The egos involved here that John, who, you know, puts himself out for causes and then somehow doesn't manage to do anything as big as the concert for Bangladesh. He does lots of many valuable, worthwhile things. I'm not knocking that at all, but in terms of doing a big event, which is more than just your own self-interest uh, being attached to it, Bangladesh wins hands down. I think I think that's right, and it's it's I think very telling that what John will go on to do is sometime in New York City, where he's just writing protest song after protest song after protest song. He will do. Uh, sort of pop-up gigs, uh, you you would call them today, for various causes, Attic Estate, John Sinclair, things like that. But they're relatively low-key, frequently controversial. Um, And yes, this kind of egoless uh, humanitarian cause 
is not in George in, in John's um, ambit at this stage. The irony being that you know, Imagine goes on to become this anthem. exactly that kind of mm. anthem, this humanitarian anthem. But in terms of what he is doing practically, um, uh, you know, not so much. Uh, and looking at other kind of comments, uh, Harrison bowed for Gary Tillery. The concert from Bangladesh sealed Harrison's stature as something more than a major celebrity uh, that, you know, major artists could set aside their egos and paychecks to help people who are suffering. Rolling Stone reviewed the concert saying they were a brief incandescent revival of all that was best about the 60s. And I, I, in retrospect, I kind of wonder myself, you know, why is this important? Is this one of these moments where the 60s became the 60s? You know, what the Bangladesh gigs are kind of codifying you know, we were the '60s crew, and we were really important. And you know, yeah, I think th- I think there's I think there's a you know a, a debate to be had. Is this the high watermark, or is this the end of the '60s? Is this yeah. is this you know people say that about Woodstock? Well, is Woodstock the pinnacle, or is actually Woodstock the last sign-off? Um, Jan Wenner in in the documentary makes uh, that point about you know by the time we got to August 1971, you had had. Uh, Altamont, uh, the Beatles had broken up. Um, you know, you had the the kind of Manson murders had had killed the hippie dream, uh, and he, he said there was a a lack of direction. Mm. Um, and his take is that this sort of rein, reinvigorated that. And Neil Aspinall makes the point. He said this is George's delivering on the '60s dream that yeah. George never really lost that that because of the religion and his his sort of spiritualism he always felt well there still is the possibility to deliver on the kind of peace and love yeah aspect you know lennon by 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 1973 is is you know it's it's over it's gone we just have to kind of get through and and move on but george has still got that so is it is it does it start something new or does it sort of just draw a line under this is the kind of high watermark of, of, of yeah what... i think i think it kind of codifies something yeah. to say oh this is a worthwhile thing to do to put into the arsenal of this type of performers you know which which kind of eventually reaches its peak in in live aid you know that there is people who like to draw a line between you know bangladesh gig and live aid and i can see that you know even geldof himself the organizer of live aid has, has said as much I, I yeah I, th- I think that's true and you, you, there isn't a cynicism you know there's cynic- there was cynicism in some quarters about live aid and certainly since live aid there's been a lot of cynicism around yep. almost every charity event uh that 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 goes on um there there seems to be an absolute lack of of cynicism here um from the press from the audience uh y- you know, there's, there, there isn't a sense of, well, why am I paying $7.50 for a ticket to see you? Why don't you just write a check yourself? Which yeah. is a much more kind of late 20th century, early 21st century attitude. Well, why, what, you know, you're rich and famous. Write the check, yeah. you, you know. Um, so that's, that's, that's I, I think, yeah, it kind of codifies. This is, this is the best of, of, of that uh, outlook. As we look at the story, something that's really apparent is how much time George gives up in 1971 to this project. And we can come back in a yes. few minutes as to whether he, you know, that was time well spent or not. But even once the gig is over on the 1st of August, there are weeks of mixing of the live album that have to take place. You know, there's a film that's starting to be put together into the background. And then there's the business side of, you know, in September, George is meeting with the Treasury to try and 
sort out the taxation because one of the things that comes to undo Bangladesh a little bit is that things aren't as well prepped or as organized as they could have been. This is this is this is right. This is absolutely right. And it 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 does start Pretty quickly, uh, George starts to run into difficulties about getting the album out, getting the film out, dealing with the tax affairs. He has at one point very optimistically said before the gig, we're going to have a live album. There's going to be a triple album in the shops within 10 days of the gig. Yeah. You know, that's the that's and, it, you know, it ends up it doesn't come out um, for, for for months um, the, the, on the they're also pretty quickly articles start appearing in, I think it's the New York Times, New York Post starts talking about where is the money and has the money got to certain locations and things things like that. But um, the album, they start working on that immediately. Mm. Um, and again, in the, in the documentary, they start, uh, the, the, there's an interview with the guys who are doing the mixing and saying, we just sat down with George and he said, that take, this take, that take, that take. Um, and he's, he said, you know, they didn't have the film to work from. They were just working from the sound. It was a 16-track recording. And they're laughing and saying, you know, they George was saying, it was amazing. We used 44 mics. And one of the guys laughed and said, we put 44 mics on a drum kit these days. <laughs> um, you know, um, there were some overdubs. Yeah. Some of Leon Russell's medley is an overdub. Um, some of the guitars on While My Guitar Gently Weeps are overdubbed. And Wawa is a composite. All oh, right, kind of uh, shut and cut um, um, from the two versions. And, you know, uh, what's interesting is that uh, none of the stuff on the album comes from the UK concert for Bangladesh. Yes, which is really, you know, we, we, we doesn't get enough coverage. <laughs> Everyone remembers the UK concert for Bangladesh. Yeah. yeah. I'll just get my notes here. Uh, all the famous people who were at it. But it was there was a UK concert for Bangladesh. Yes. I had never heard this mentioned. Never heard this mentioned. But uh, there were rumours of a possible repeat uh, to be held at Wembley Stadium in October. But... Harrison and Klein basically said, no, it's not going to happen. I think they, you know, you can't catch lightning twice. Mm. Can, you, can you catch lightning at all? You can't, uh, you can't, well, you, lightning conductors catch lightning, don't they? Well, there you go. Maybe you can't catch <laughs> lightning twice. So, yes. Yes, you can. But, can, well, yeah, yes. But uh, that's a terrible Artistic analogy. lightning, yes. Yes. They, they, <laughs> you know, they, they're not going to be able to, uh, they're not going to be able to uh, duplicate that. So, But instead, on the 18th uh, of September... In, at the Oval in South London, there was a UK concert. North London. Sorry, pedantic me sitting in. Fair enough. <laughs> it's near, it's I, around I, the corner from Abbey Road, the Oval. I, I buy to your... Uh, um... <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I'd never heard of this either. Uh, 35,000 people go to see The Who, The Faces, Mott the Hoople, America and Lindisfarne. Dream, yeah. dream, dream lineup. Well, listen, The Who in 1971 were a force to be reckoned with. You yeah, know? The Who, The Faces, Mott, The Hoople, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's a decent... But again, what this is, it's just a little mini festival where one band comes on, one band goes off, another band comes on. You know, it's, yeah. it, it's not that kind of big ensemble uh, uh, approach. Yes. Um, uh, you know, and it did occur, you know, and, and that I suppose that's the Live Aid approach where you get one band on, one band off. But the Prince's Trust concerts are probably a better, the UK Prince's Trust concerts yes. from the 80s are probably a more directly comparable where you had this lineup. But again, you know, let's, let's, uh, let, let's, let's not denigrate too much uh, the English version. But, uh, no, no, not at all. It's still all for a it's good It's not cause. the same thing. 
Um, so there's a big push, you know, as you say, the initial plan is to get things out about 10 days later. That doesn't happen. Um, the, the, the album does eventually appear right at the end of 1971, uh, on the, the 20th of December, 71 is the official album release date. Yes. And then the, there's some footage circulating from the movie. Uh, Dick Cavacho shows a clip of the movie uh, from My Sweet Lord in November 71. The, the movie doesn't appear till a few months after that again. That, that's it. That's it. I mean, George appears on the Dick Cavett show uh, really with the intention, I think, of putting a lot of moral pressure on the record companies to get their act together. Yes. Um, you know, and at one point he, he specifically calls out uh, uh, Baskar Menon uh, from Capital and says, if you don't put this out, I'm going to put it out. And he kind of looks directly into the camera and says, so sue me. <laughs> um, because capital at this stage are saying, no, no, we need we need to get money. We need to get uh, money for distribution. Um, we can't do this for nothing. And they end up, they do. They get 25 cents per album. Uh, so they're the only company that makes any money. Gosh. Officially, and the album, officially makes any money. The album is a huge seller. It's number one in the UK. It's number two on the Billboard charts. You know, it's number one in a couple of other charts around the world, Norway. Um so the album is a big seller and makes money. Uh, and the, the movie is a big hit as well. Yes, yes. Uh, the movie uh, comes out, as you say, in, in 1972. And I say there is, the, the, specifically, I said John Lennon appeared at the LA premiere. He actually turns up at the New York premiere with Yoko. Um, oh, right. But he walks out, supposedly, during the Dylan segment. Ah, oh, he's a he's a what delicate is, soul, isn't he? What is that? What is that? Yeah, what does that what does that tell you? You know, what does that tell us about John Lennon? So he sits through the movie. He's clearly sitting through the movie, watching George cement his reputation, mm. and then Dylan comes on, and Lennon gets up and leaves. Uh, look, oh, I, I I'm very wary of saying you know what was going on in their heads at the time. You know, it's. It's it's difficult. I think, you know, something that we've learned a little bit about Lennon is he perhaps wasn't as confident as yeah. we thought. Yeah. Um, you know, we know or he has spoken about when he eventually goes on stage, say, with Elton at the end of 74, how nervous he was, how anxious he was. He uh, was never really as confident or as certain in his talent as maybe Paul was, even though his talent was obviously immense. And it's 1971 is kind of an uncharted territory where all four Beatles are trying to figure out in their own individual ways, what did it all mean? And what do I mean? And what is what is my, what, what is my thing? You know, yeah. it's uh, we, we know a bit more now, 50 years later, looking back. I, but in I, the yeah, cut and I, thrust I, of it, I think I, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And we're back to that point that I keep harping on about, about, you know, George and Ringo were the top Beatles in 1971. Yeah. So the, uh, the film eventually uh, comes out in 72. And by the time it comes out in the UK, it's, uh, it comes out at the end of July 72. So that's a whole year later yeah. that it's, it's coming out. And, you know, we're kind of used to now people posting mobile phone footage from gigs. But, to, you know, to actually wait a year to, to see something like that in the cinema is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, what the word of mouth must have been or the anticipation I was going to say the, been... anti the anticipation yes so it's it's breaking records in in london apparently when it comes out and there is still stuff about the the concert uh, and even the whole event that you know you, you, there was this whole skin of their teeth kind of thing that they were doing that some yes. of the concert footage is unusable it's all over the place the the guy the director was a guy called Saul Swimmer and he uh, he is in the documentary with the with the DVD and he said there are various things he said we had various cameras set up 
and they all started filming at the same time. So they all ran out of film at the same time. And he said, obviously what we we should have done was start, start them five minutes apart. Yes. Um, but he said it was just like 15 minutes in, we lost all the footage. And then because it, the, the you know, you're, you're, it's not like, it's not video, it's not digital. Obviously they're just these big canisters of film being fed into to cameras. He said, none of the cameras are synced with yes. each other. Um, he said, so the post-production was the nightmare was to get everything synced up yeah. uh, and he said there are bits where they didn't have footage or they have long shots from the back that they have to kind of fly in to cover things um, what they did they filmed it all on 16 millimeter and then they decided they were going to blow it up to 70 millimeter Ooh. and uh, there was nowhere to do it and nobody could do this. And he said they had to take it to Hollywood. They had to specifically get somebody from, you know, the olden days of Hollywood to build a machine that they could actually <laughs> do it. And again, I'm not across the technical reasons for this, but he was saying, he says on the documentary, the key thing was not so much the the, the visuals, but the sound. They wanted the sound to be good. Yeah. Um, so they had to put, he said, if you have 70 millimeter, it has a strip down each side of the film that you can sync up the sound on. And that was George's big thing was to get the sound. And they had to transfer every single frame individually from 16 to 70 millimeter. This does sound like a job for Peter Jackson. I know I've already said that, but uh, if there's if there's 16 millimeter footage out there and reels of sound, yeah. He's proved himself he's, the man to he's, mash he's, that stuff he's, together. He's the man. The DVD remaster from, from 2005 is excellent. Yeah. But, and the sound is has obviously been uh, done as well. Uh, the, the DVD is excellent. I do remember seeing, I can't even, I can't remember where I saw it. Uh, I mean, maybe somebody had it on a VHS cassette at some point. Um, mm. And it was pretty grainy. It was really pretty ropey. But uh, I was watching it uh, again recently, and uh, particularly the Dylan set, uh, it, it's crystal clear. So they've, yeah. they've clearly been able to do something. But yeah, time for an upgrade. So let's talk about the money for a bit. Um, because, you know, um, Alan Klein, great guy. Yeah, uh, he's, it, he's the man resting uh, in his account. He seemed to... Uh, uh, he failed to register the event as a formal UNICEF benefit. And so what should have been a tax-exempt charity event, did it, it, it was liable for taxes. And if we know anything about Alan Klein, um, it's that uh, he's dead and we can say what we like, but also <laughs> that uh, dealing with taxes was not, how you say, his strong suit. Well, he was either very good at dealing with taxes <laughs> or very bad at dealing with taxes, depending whether you're a tax man or not the tax Yes, man. yes, that is true. Um, but there is money that does get handed over. There's apparently money given to UNICEF in August, the, the 250 odd grand of ticket receipts that's handed over to UNICEF in August uh, 71. Uh, and then there's the money that comes from the, the film and the album and all the rest. So capital are handing over money to Apple to give to Bangladesh and all sorts of stuff. That's it. So the, the gate receipts uh, were $243,000, uh, which went to UNICEF on the 12th of August. And the equivalent there is $1.6 So mm. if that was happening today, there would be $1.6 in gate receipts. Um, in December, Capital Records gave $3.75 million uh, to Apple for sales of the um, uh, 
Bangladesh album, that's the equivalent of $25 million. Okay. And I do remember that Capital did take a tiny slice mm-hmm. there. And Basker Menon, to give him credit, uh, is pretty contrite about that in the 2005 um documentary um and uh but particularly in the uk they ref- the tax man refused to waive uh refused to waive the, fa- <laughs> the, the tax i'd like to think that the the tax officer like this harrison fellow does he have any opinions on tax men that we need to know about oh i see it's like that is it and then we'll take our cut yeah. Um, so, so apparently George, in the end, wrote a, a, a check for a million dollars to cover the tax out of his own money. Gosh. Gosh. There you go. Um, and what's interesting about the thing is that it is still, it's, it's, it's now owned by UNICEF. There's a George Harrison Fund for UNICEF that now, yes. if I'm right, owns the rights to the whole project and continues to make money and profit off the project. That's that's right. There's a specific uh, a specific fund. Uh, there's a, uh, a guy at Apple who's tasked with uh, sort of like looking after the Bangladesh, and, and he and Olivia are, are responsible. But UNICEF basically administer the whole thing. And um, uh, some of the figures uh, saying in 1981, a further 8.8 million uh, was added to it by 1991. George was saying 13.5 uh, million. And uh, it, he was saying in the in the late nineties, uh, it's about forty five million dollars, and UNICEF now have the whole thing, and they can they can do it. Yeah. Interestingly, in in nineteen seventy one, George Ravi and Alan Klein were given a special award by UNICEF. Oh, that's nice to to thank them. Yep. for their contribution to bookkeeping. I guess <laughs> possibly. <laughs> um, so. It is nice to think that 50 years later, because it's obviously the 50th anniversary in uh, 2021, that it is still generating cash and that it's, you know, that UNICEF have the rights to this kind of thing. And perhaps the entertainment business is more adept at managing the affairs or the the business setup that is needed for a, a charity gig or for an entity like this to to, to make money. Because I, I, I would imagine at the time in 71, the furthest thing from their mind would be that this would still be generating cash in the 21st century for UNICEF. It was really just, we'll get tickets, we'll get albums, we'll get cinema sales, and we'll give them some money over the next 12 months. Yes, but it's nice that yes. it's still a, a big deal. It, it, it is, it is. And uh, the, the other thing to point out here is that this is also George learning the lesson from uh, Bangladesh. He set up the Material World Foundation. Yes, and the, the money's from the next album, have this charitable contribution. Yeah, all going. So he he kind of got the paperwork in order uh, for the next for, for for the next album. But yeah, it's still going and it's expanded. Uh, the fund has expanded its work beyond uh, uh, Bangladesh and India and has projects in uh, Africa. And there's a there's a website that you can go to and have hmm. a look at what they do and you can donate. So it comes back to the big old question, Stephen. What did it all mean? What was the point of all of this? I. When you look at the story, it seems to me that George spent an insane amount of time in 1971 on this project. Yes. And perhaps uh, that wasn't the best way to spend the year when he had the most capital on his solo fame. Now, depending on what you think best is, because George would probably still say now, uh, if he could, that this was the best use of his time at that time. But if I was looking at it from a 
you know, very careerist point of view. You could from, say from an Alan Klein point of view. Well, I'm, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good manager. I Peter always think Grant, of you. I no. always think. I always think of you as Alan Klein. <laughs> Thanks very, very much. Don Arden, uh, a kind Ron of Don Klein <laughs> in, in, a, in a Don Arden sort of way. Uh, but if you were a manager person, saying, "Okay, you've got number one singles, you've yep. got number one albums, you've got this triple album, you've, you've, you're surfing the wave of fame." What's curious about the Bangladesh gig is you think, well, compared to George's 74 tour, there's a lot of similarities. Ravi Shankar's involved. There's a bit of rock. There's a bit of Indian. There's a bit of everything. Bangladesh is fantastically well constructed as an audience event with Ravi at the start and then a bit of Beatles, a bit of solo, acoustic set, you know, ending that taking something like that on the road in the second half of 1971, irrespective of the charity aspect, you know, a road show with, say, even just Leon Russell's band, Ravi Shankar and George Harrison, forget Bob Dylan. Yep. That would have been a great night out. It would have been a great night out. Forget Bob Dylan. I don't know, but I mean, you wouldn't get, you, no, you wouldn't get Bob to go to do the tour. So, but as a tour, uh, you know, a George Harrison, Leon Russell, Ravi Shankar tour in late, say, from September to December 71 across the US doing a version of that gig would have made a lot of people happy. It would have made a lot of people happy um, and probably made George an awful lot of money and uh, cemented his kind of position as the kind of King Beatle at that point. The, but look at what he was doing before Ravi Shankar brought this to his attention. So he's got My Sweet Lord is kind of selling by the juggernaut load. All things must pass. He is, you know, he's worked with Ringo on uh, It Don't Come Easy, which is another kind of number one single. He's, he is on top of the world. And what is he doing? He's working on a Ravi Shankar film uh, that's been in production for years. He's in the studio in Apple Studios working as a producer for Badfinger. He's not, even before this comes into view, he is not uh, exploiting uh, commercially. Um, I, I, I think this is kind of very indicative of the man, but also his general career path. If you think like 1987, he comes back, he has a number one album, he's a number one single. And how does he respond? He still doesn't tour. He decides to form the Wilburys. He goes off and does whatever. Because he kind of, that's that would be great to hang out with the guys. And I, I think I think he kind of had, he, he has no ambition I mean, that's an odd thing to say for someone that keeps kind of scoring number one singles, but he doesn't, he isn't driven in the way that Paul is driven or John is driven. And in the Beatles, that was a kind of, maybe a little bit of a handicap. And he, he stops putting his songs up for consideration. He stopped, he does all this. He's made the point. He's got a number one album. He's outselling everybody else, but he's still doing these altruistic, uh, Exercises the way in Apple he was producing Jackie Lomax, Doris Troy, uh, Billy Preston, Ravi Shankar. He's still doing the same thing. But well, obviously, that's why we love him. He's doing what he wants to do. And that's all we can really ask of an artist, I suppose. And he's done it. He's been a big rock star. He's had all the hits. He doesn't need it. He, he would feel himself. Yeah. And, and the next album, Living in the Material World, is hugely delayed uh, in, yeah. in, in terms of, you know, all things must pass. Uh, then suddenly it's. 1973 and it's a much lower key it's a beautiful album i love that album but and it's a big hit but it kind of fades away pretty quickly 
And and then you've got the big that we, we talked about for the big kind of missteps of 1974. But I think it's it's you know what, what do you do when you reach the top? It's it's really interesting that like just thinking about it now that comparison of you know he's big in 7071. What does he do? He's big in 87, 88. What does he do? It's funny that yeah. even the touring there's a parallel. A few years after the fact he tours in 74. A few years yeah. after the fact he tours in 91, and both times he goes. No, yeah. and just walks away. It's yeah. so yeah. He obviously was just doing what he wanted, and a hundred percent respect for that. I think so. I, I and I, I I just like the idea that at eighty seven he sort of thought, okay, I you know I can I can have a number one album, number one single. I can be the last Beatle to have a number one single <laughs> in America. Um, he puts that out, yeah, and just just walks away. So he's not he he's not driven. So we are the fools for thinking questions like, well, did this derail George's career? George would be saying, I don't have a career. I have a life and I'm just living my life. I think that's exactly it. I I had written that question down and I think it is a kind of stupid question. Did it derail George's career? I I think he just didn't he he just didn't uh, behave or respond in a way that anybody expected him to do. You know, Rolling Stone and people like that were basically saying George Harrison was the most powerful man in rock. Hmm in 1973. Uh, and it all worked out the way it should have. I don't think Paul or John should have been there. No, no, no. Uh, I think I think it worked out the way it's supposed to work out. I'm, I, I'm not the biggest Dylan head, but did it have a significant impact for Dylan beyond 1971? I, I, I think so. I, I, I again, I, I buy to, you know, is it Rolling Bob and other podcast that's the dylan podcast to go to people um and uh, maybe there's an episode i can get them to do on that but uh i i think it did because i say he hadn't he hadn't done a tour since uh, 66 he hadn't done a full live gig since 69 he seems genuinely on stage mm. he seems relaxed you know i read that quote from paul williams he's giving the audience what they want and he uh uh, it's a kind of iconic Dylan and he seems genuinely enthused by what he's doing and the reports, you know, he's back at the hotel going, why didn't we do three shows? This is great. Yeah. This is amazing. And suddenly he realizes, you know, the audience kind of love him. Now, ultimately that kind of leads on to, I suppose there's a couple of albums in the meantime, he goes to Geffen, he releases Planet Waves. Then you get the big tour with the band where yes. again, he's tapping into that sort of iconography of the 66 yeah, tour yeah. and, and, but yeah, so I think in a way, this is the this is the the, the resurgence of Dylan's career in the in in the mid uh, to late seventies. There's a lot going on, isn't there? There is there is a lot going on, and you know, I say Live Aid, Princess Trust, all of the gigs that have come after, all the good ones we can say. Yes, we should we should probably look some at some other point at George's role in some other charity gigs, but that's that maybe for good. another day. Another day. Um, uh, the Paul McCartney song. Anyway. Can <laughs> yes, I, can I, can I give you one more point? I've got one more fun fact. I know you like fun facts. I, yes, come on, bring it on. Uh, the cover for, the original cover for the concert for Bangladesh is a, is, is a kind of child refugee sitting mm. there. And he, George had a fight with uh, Capital. He, they said, no, this is too depressing. Uh, there's a nice photograph in the back of a guitar case that's full of refugee and food supplies could we use that and George was absolutely adamant that uh, it had it, it wasn't to be a gaudy mm. kind of cover it had to be this cover but my question is photographs from the Bangladesh concert did provide the cover for two 
other albums? Oh. Uh, studio albums or live albums? Uh, studio albums, and they were both compilation albums by two artists that were on stage. I'm going to guess Leon Russell. No. Oh, gosh. Uh, I have no idea. Bob Dylan, More Greatest Hits. Is, is that a, from Bangladesh? It's a photograph. It's a kind of blue, and it's yeah, a photograph yeah, yeah. taken taken from the back of the stage. Um, and the other one is an album, no doubt you have in your collection, uh, The History of Eric Clapton. I do several copies, <clears throat> um, and it has a it has a very nice picture of Eric Clapton, and that is actually an album that is worth having because it contains the original version of "Tell the Truth," recorded during the "All Things Must Pass." Wow, sessions. There you go. Ah, goodness me! Every day is a school day. Um, but what do you think, folks? The usual question we ask. Um, you know, will this send you back to your concert for Bangladesh records? Do you have uh, the concert for Bangladesh in your record collection? Let us know. We're available in all the usual places. We're on Twitter at Beatles Pod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, the website nothingisrealpod.com, the Instagram account. Uh, join us there. Uh, we're available everywhere you want to get in touch with us to continue the, the conversation going. Um, but for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.